Welcome to Piano Rhapsody, an amateur's guide to classical piano. This is a podcast where you follow the musical journey of an amateur piano player who's aiming to play advanced level pieces one day, specifically Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, which is where the podcast gets its name. And while we may be making progress, we are not quite there yet. So until we reach this goal, every week we break down one of the pieces along the road, ranging anywhere from the Baroque period all the way up to modern day. We'll explore the history surrounding the work, examine the music within, and hopefully we all walk away a little more informed and appreciative of classical music. Then we can build on this foundation so we can all tackle more difficult works in the future. This is episode 13.2, the second episode in a series where we celebrate the progress achieved during 2021. In this series, we explore two etudes, one that the Royal Conservatory of Music ranked level 8 and one at level 9. The pieces were recorded about a year apart, so we'll see if you can pick out the piece that was played by the more experienced version of myself. It's a little bit of an audio game to spice things up. So let's get started. The first selection today is a work by a lesser-known Armenian and Russian composer named Janari Karganov. If the name of this obscure composer actually sounds familiar to you, it's because we discussed one of his pieces way back in series number three. I actually had a double take because I was having an odd feeling of deja vu. Believe it or not, available information on Janari Karganov is still scarce. In case you're looking for a 2022 New Year's resolution, we're still waiting on someone to write that exhaustive biography on Karganov's life. The informational black hole on this composer is most likely due to the fact that he died very young at the age of 31. Maybe he never had an opportunity to reach his full potential, who knows? At least his educational etudes have withstood the test of time. The Karganov etude that we're going to discuss this week is called Dance of the Elves. Now I told you a couple weeks back in the episode with Grieg's fairy dance that we would be encountering some elves in the future. And here we are. More mythological creature talk. Similar to fairies, the history of elves dates back to Germanic and Norse mythologies. They were believed to be supernaturally beautiful beings with magical powers that were mostly ambivalent to humans, but had the power to hurt or help them. Throughout mythology, there are examples of elves behaving across a spectrum of behavior like inflicting sickness on humans, all the way to seducing them. By the time the 19th and especially the 20th centuries came along, belief in elves plummeted, although they remained popular figures in art and literature, and were in just about every grim fairy tale you can imagine. The elf mythos evolved during the 20th century in the United States as it became intertwined in Christian cosmology and the Santa Claus story. Keebler also played a major role in this evolution, as they depicted elves as being happy, cookie-making forest dwellers. But let's return to the elves of Norse mythology for a minute, who were believed to be mostly beautiful females who lived under the rule of an elven king. Humans would periodically see these elves dancing in the meadows, especially on misty mornings. The elven girls would leave a circle where they dance, 
as described by historian Anne-Marie Hallstrom. Where the forest met the lake, you could find elf circles. They were round places where the grass had become flattened like a floor. Elves had danced there. It could be dangerous, and one could become ill if one had trodden over such a place. And boy, she wasn't kidding about becoming ill. And here's where things get a little weird, and oddly specific. Legend has it that if you urinated in one of these elf circles, it would cause you to acquire a venereal disease. A far cry from Santa's little helpers, huh? And even if you weren't peeing in one of these circles, just seeing these elves dance caused some problems. If a human saw one of these elven dances, while it may have seemed like mere minutes have passed, actual years pass by in the real world. Humans being lured by elf dancing is a common theme in Scandinavian mythology. So what kind of music were these elves dancing to that made them so alluring and mysterious? Well, this is Karganov's vision of the elfin dance. This is an etude to practice the concept of a light touch, which is very similar to Grieg's fairy dance from a few weeks back, which if you recall, is also translated to elfin dance in some sources. This piece utilizes a ternary form of ABA to present two different sections of contrasting articulation, utilizing both staccato and legato playing. Section A is the main idea, which highlights the goal of the etude, playing with a light, quick, clear style. Both hands are positioned in the treble clef in this section, which eliminates a bass line and infuses the piece with a feeling like it took a big breath from a helium balloon. We have a rapidly moving, bouncing melody line in the right hand, accompanied by light, staccato accompaniment with the left hand. This higher-pitched, bouncy light theme easily paints the picture of a bunch of graceful, beautiful creatures dancing in a circle. Part B of this etude swaps the bouncy staccato articulation for a smooth, flowing, legato touch. It also shifts the minor key from part A to a major key. This part is smooth as ice and is a short departure from the brisk circle dance that we heard in part A. Perhaps this part is intended to represent a dance solo by an elven ballerina who's trying to lure unsuspecting humans into a trap of sucking years from their life. But from here, to complete the ABA form, we must return to the A section, which rounds out the etude and brings us to the end of the piece. So let's listen to the first half of our etude pair for the day. This is Dance of the Elves, number three, from Janari Karganov's Opus 21.
Well, since 2029 is right around the corner, <laughs> just kidding. We didn't experience an elven time warp, I promise. So let's just take a step away from mythological creatures for a moment and move on to the second selection. An etude by a composer named Heinrich Hoffmann called To the Loot. Heinrich Hoffmann was a German composer who lived during the Romantic period, who history has not been too kind to. Hoffmann experienced success as a composer during his life, writing one of the most popular orchestral works of the late 19th century, called the Frithjof Symphony. But after his death, his work mostly fell into obscurity. On top of his musical legacy being mostly forgotten, Heinrich Hoffmann was overshadowed in history by a German painter who shared the exact same name, who gained lasting notoriety for his paintings of Jesus Christ. Poor luck. What can you do about that? Name your children something obscure, future parents, or they'll be forgotten by history. Hoffmann's etude is called To the Lute and is a piano translation of lute music. The lute is most commonly associated with the medieval period, but the first lutes actually date back to ancient Egypt, circa 1350 BC. It was the stringed instrument of choice before the guitar and violin were born, and the strings were plucked by a quill. Lutes remained popular until the Baroque period, where they began to take a back seat to keyboard instruments. And by the time the classical period came around, Lutes were almost entirely phased out. But here we are. We celebrate the sound of the lute in this etude. To mimic the sound of strings, there's a constant flow of arpeggios in the middle voice that reflects the idea of plucking strings one at a time. trick to this etude is to draw out the melody line without letting that inner voice overpower it. Even though the middle voice has more movement and notes, it's not what we want to hear. Let me isolate the melody for you. This is what we are striving to hear. And here's the melody one more time with the other voices, trying to blend together and not drown out the main idea. Because of the constant arpeggios in the left hand, this is also a good exercise in finger positioning in order to cover the span of notes smoothly, which I assume is an easier task on an actual lute. But then again, 
I'm not a medieval bard, so what do I know? Let's take a moment to appreciate this ode to the instrument forgotten by history, by a man who was also forgotten by history. This is To the Lute, Opus 37, Book 2, Number 1, by non-Jesus painting composer Heinrich Hoffmann. Alright, it's time to get your votes in. Which selection do you think is the one voted more difficult, played by the more experienced, wiser version of myself? Is it the quick, light dance of the venereal disease spreading elves, or the arpeggiated ode to the stringed lute? Well, once again, dear listeners, it is the second piece of the day. To the Lute is ranked number 9 by the Royal Conservatory of Music. Likely both for its musicality in drawing out a melody line, and for its technical feature of left-handed accuracy and fluency. So if you're 2 for 2 so far, well done. Gold stars all around. And if you're 0 for 2, don't fret. You still have two more weeks to get on the board. We'll try again next week with another pair. You can find the standalone recordings of the pieces we discussed today directly in the podcast feed. Check out Piano Rhapsody on SoundCloud for all of the tracks from this podcast and more. You can find me on Twitter at Piano Rhapsody or email me at pianorhapsodypodcast at gmail.com. If you haven't already, please hit the subscribe button on your podcatcher and consider rating and reviewing. This is the best way to never miss a new episode and it helps the podcast gain more visibility. 
Thank you as always for your time and your ears. Have a great Thanksgiving. And remember, do not urinate in elf circles.